Life as we know it is filled with exams. So remember back in school when we had to at times write exams for some subject that we'd been studying. Do you remember when you turned 16, those of you that were old enough and you had to go to a license bureau and write your driver's test exam? Uh, Do you remember perhaps if you are into hunting, taking your firearms course or your hunting course and then having to write an examination for that? Or maybe you've gone on to advanced studies, you've earned a doctorate and you had to do doctoral exams. There's lots of different exams that we write in life. And prior to writing the exam, there's the assumption that you've been exposed to a body of knowledge. Someone's taught you something and then you are subsequently tested on it. And the same is true when we study this book, the word of God. God wants us to self-examine. God wants us to listen to his word taught, to read his word. And whenever we read his word, he wants us to examine ourselves to make sure that we are lining ourselves up with it. And if we score an 80, okay, fine. But the goal is always 100%. The goal is always to press ourselves towards increased obedience to the word of God. And so in this respect, and in keeping with my pre-prayer comments, every encounter with the Bible should lead to self-examination. Never make the mistake of just studying the Bible for knowledge. Oh, I, I know another verse. I know a little bit more about scripture. Always take the opportunity that you have to study the word of God, to understand it, to, to, to expound it, but then to examine yourself. Is my life actually lined up with what I have just read or what I've just heard? In the final chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, we have this collection of warnings and tests and final instructions for the church. And in some respects, they seem a little bit piecemeal, almost like Paul's trying to throw in a whole bunch of mini sermons into this final chapter. But there's also some unity, I think, to this passage and that it calls us to examine ourselves for sin and righteousness. So as we enter into this text, would you make yourself available to God and examine yourself for sin and for righteousness? Do some self-reflection and ask, is it possible that I have some sin in my life, some failures, some lack of obedience that I need to make some correctives on? And likewise, if you've had some victories, and by the way, Christians should celebrate their victories, not just focus on our sins, but celebrate our victories through Christ This affirms us that God is at work in our lives as we see spiritual fruit being born when previously we didn't. So we examine ourselves for sin and for righteousness. So the background, if you're just joining us, is 2 Corinthians is sort of a a defensive slash instructional book given to the Corinthian church because prior to this, Paul had written a painful letter to the church rebuking them. And the majority of the church, as best as we can tell, received it. But some of them got really snarly with Paul and started telling lies about him and trash-talking him and all that kind of thing. So in the book, we're we're always seeing this this back and forth between instructing, encouraging, but also... Paul defending himself, defending his ministry and rebuking some members of the church that had uh, belittled his ministry. 
So he's preparing, of course, for yet a third visit to this church. And here's what he says in verse one. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this goes right back to the Ten Commandments, not perjuring yourself in court. And Paul is kind of saying that at this point to remind them, don't, don't be throwing allegations at me without evidence. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. So what's he doing? We're going to see this a little bit more clearly in a moment, but he's basically saying he's pushing back against this allegation that he was a different guy in person than he was when he wrote to them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking to me, it says in verse three, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified, speaking of Christ, in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So that's a little convoluted if you just read it once, but we're going to come back and unpack this. And then this statement in verse five, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Verse one is Paul telling the church that he is going to come and visit them in person, even though some had trash talked him. He wasn't going to back off. He wasn't going to run and hide. He wasn't going to suck his thumb in the corner because people had hurt his feelings. He was going to continue to exercise the duties that God had assigned him as a faithful apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what people thought. I think there's a lesson, an obvious lesson in there for each of us. Then in verses two and three, he reminds them that he, if necessary, will confront them in person, but he'd prefer not to. But if necessary, he would, but he'd prefer not to. Paul had written them this stern letter some had said, oh, there is Paul, you know. He's such a big mouth. He's, so, he's such a tough guy when he's writing his weighty letters to us. But in person, he's, he's meek and he's mild-mannered. Well, Paul's like, that might be seemingly true, but wait till I come and visit you. And frankly, it'd be better for you to clean up your act before I come than when I show up. This reminds me of how, some people are like this admittedly, right? So we have um, in our society what we call keyboard warriors. Have you heard of keyboard warriors? Where, you know, they're on your Facebook page just kind of lighten into you or they love to send snarly text messages or nasty emails, but they would never say that to your face. They're very different behind the keyboard in the comfort of their offices than they are in person. Don't be that kind of a person. Be the kind of person that's the same behind the keyboard as you are face to face. Well, nevertheless, people had accused Paul of that. And he's like, that's not true. But I'd frankly rather just get you to clean up your act before I come. But if I do come, I'm, I'm going to kind of come at you. So we have Paul defending himself, but also giving us, I think, a, a point of wisdom there in terms of the way we interact with one another and confront one another. And that would be that we should aim for consistency, whether in person or in writing. Verse four, he has this statement here using Christ as his example. And if you read it, 
the, the point of his, his message is to say that Christ, yeah, in his humanity, seemed weak. What do we mean by that? Well, at times he was run out of town. He was ultimately arrested. He was beaten. He was forced to drag his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. He was put to death on a cross. The world sort of had their way with him in his humanity, but through the eyes of faith, we see the bigger story. This is the God-man who ultimately was resurrected from the dead, conquered death and hell, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. So there's power in Christ, seeming weakness, but actual power. So he's using this illustration, this gospel illustration, to speak of his ministry. Yeah, I might seem like a weakling. I might seem sort of like not much, but the message that I'm preaching is a powerful message. And so Paul is defending himself, but I think he's also reminding the church that all of our confidence is found ultimately in God. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to apologize for what God has written in his word. Far be it from us to do that. I don't know if I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip that page because you might be offended by it. No, we preach the whole counsel of God's word because it's God's word and it's the power of Christ in us that we're relying upon, not our own ability to defend it or our own ability to exegete it. Nor should we lack confidence because God's power is coursing through our, our veins. Now we're gonna see how we access that power momentarily, but I'll just tip you off in advance. It starts with knowledge of his ways. We need to study the word of God. This is divine revelation. This just isn't just a book that happens to be accurate. This is revelation from God. So we need to be knowledgeable of his ways. We also need to choose to obey it, not just be you know, eggheads, lots of knowledge, no application. We need to obey it. We need to then prayerfully rely upon it when we're confronted with circumstances in life that make it difficult to obey. And we need to trust God. We just don't know what to do. Just trust God to do in us and through us what in and of ourselves we can't do. So this is all around this notion of Christ's strength being manifested in our weakness, which we also taught in the previous chapter of this same book. And then verse five, a call to examine ourselves. And what's the purpose of this? To see if we are in the faith. We examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. The opposite of which would be to be in the flesh or in the world. Let's think about this for a few minutes. Many of us, if we grew up in churches, probably wrestled with the question of, can a person actually know that they're saved? And we have churches that teach, nope, you can't, and churches that teach, yes, you can, and it's like, well, are you in a no church or a yes church? But very rarely do people actually unpack this doctrine to help people to understand it. Now, one of the terms that has historically been used to sort of label this debate is the question of eternal security. You'll rarely, if ever, hear me use that language simply because it's extra biblical. The Bible speaks of assurance. So let's use a Bible word that comes up time and time again, a Bible word. How can we be assured of our faith? 
Security really is God's thing. God knows exactly who's secure and who the fakes are. But we should concern ourselves down here in this world with assurance. The Bible speaks much about that in books like Hebrews. How can I be assured of my faith? If you read books like James, there's the implication there that there are certain qualities that will inevitably be present in the life of a truly born-again person. So as you think about this idea of eternal assurance, there's really sort of three elements to it. The foundational element is to make sure you're believing the right thing. So there's no name under heaven given among men whereby you must be, might be saved and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to have a correct gospel. You can't be trusting a Muhammad, Buddha, the state, some God you made up, your own self. You have to be trusting in Jesus and the right Jesus, the Jesus of scripture. You have to understand that he is both God and man, born of a virgin, that he grew up and lived a sinless life, that he died on a cruel Roman cross at the hands of the Gentiles at the bequest of the Jews, meaning that all humanity was complicit within his death, but that he conquered death and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and makes intercession for us. You have to have the right gospel. You have to understand that it's by faith alone that a person is saved by the grace of God. You can't add works to it. You can't think, well, I go to church, so I'm a Christian, or my parents are Christians, or my skin's the right color, so I must be a Christian because my nation's Christian, or whatever nonsense you might have been taught. You have to have the correct content. You have to make sure you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and him, and him alone for your salvation. Secondly, you have to actually trust and believe in that. Not just know it, not just hear it, not just intellectually affirm it, but you have to trust in it. The reformers talked about knowledge and using the word notitia. You had to have the right knowledge, but then you also had to assent. You had to have a census. You had to actually believe in it, trust in it, rest in it, put your faith in it. And sadly, I think there are many in the church of Jesus Christ today that know the truth, but they're not actually trusting in the truth. They, they know the gospel, they can articulate the gospel, but they're not resting in it. It doesn't actually undergird their lives. But biblical faith is faith, it's trust. Not just mental belief, but trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They also added this word fiducia, which means to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the third evidence that increases our assurance is spiritual fruit. By their fruits, you shall know them. So if I'm like, I know the truth of the gospel and I believe in the truth of the gospel, but you don't see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, increasingly present in my life, you can be like, I don't know about this guy. So we look for spiritual fruit because spiritual fruit indicates the spirit is residing in us and he is sanctifying us. And increasingly we are being conformed into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the means and methods of us being strengthened to see if we are in the faith. Are we actually trusting in what Christ has accomplished and are we subsequently, as Paul continues to call the Corinthian church to, 
Are we being obedient to the precepts and principles of scripture? Now, in all of this, it's critical for us to know where our true strength comes from, and that is Christ. So it is Christ's strength that empowers us all. The reason why this is important for us to sort of remind ourselves of is because what often happens with Christians is they, they realize their brokenness, they realize they're sinners, they realize their need for a savior, they come to faith in Jesus Christ, they grow in the faith, they're discipled, and over time they start to become disciple makers and leaders and influencers. And you can get to a point in your life where you've been in Christ you know, five times longer than you were out of Christ. And what happens? You can start to become prideful, self-reliant, kind of super spiritual. You compare yourself with other people and convince yourself that you have more insight than others, more discernment than others, that you're sort of a step or two ahead of others. And Christians then can do a spiritual nosedive, even mature Christians, when they become self-reliant rather than God-reliant. So in this text, we are reminded of where our true strength comes from. Look what it says in the second part of verse 5 there. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ is in you? He's our resource. He's in you. He lords it over us. A little reminder there that he's our owner. But he's also in us as a resource. But then it says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Meaning that, well, if you don't have gospel belief, gospel trust, and spiritual fruit, eh, you failed the test, that means Christ isn't in you. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So you know how sometimes a, a preacher or teacher might say, might say in order to get the point across to you, they'll use themselves as a negative example. They're preaching away and they might say something like, man, I hope that God allows me to have victory in that area. But what are they really doing? They're getting you to think about, do you have victory in that area? This is, I think, what Paul's tactic is here, his rhetorical strategy. He wants them to test themselves. But instead of saying, I hope you don't fail the test, he says, I hope you will find out that we, that is those you accuse of not being legitimate, have not failed the test. Hint, hint. Are you thinking about this too? Are you analyzing and assessing yourself? You see, the authenticity of our faith is proven when we test ourselves, we examine ourselves, and we should. This increases our assurance. Or if we fail the test, causes us to question whether or not we've really trusted in Jesus Christ in the first place and allowed him to transform us. So we could ask questions for ourselves like, who are we trusting in? Don't answer the question too quick. Just meditate upon that a little bit. Who are you trusting in? Your longevity as a churchman? The fact that you're a little further ahead of the person sitting to your right or left? Or have you actually assessed yourself in light of scripture? And has that increased your assurance of salvation? Who empowers you? If Christ is in you, it's got to mean something. So if Christ is in you, are you being empowered by Christ or are you being empowered by some religiosity? I remember many years ago when I was, I just finished a year of Bible college and I was working for a um, 
concrete company. We're refinishing concrete. And everybody that I worked for was a Jehovah's Witness. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses can be wonderful people, but they're not born-again Christians because they deny the divinity of Christ. They deny justification by grace through faith alone. So lest you're deceived, let me just tell you straight up, they're not gonna be in heaven with us if they're actually trusting in Jehovah's Witness theology. They've denied the gospel. So here I am as this young Bible college student, and I'm with these three or four guys. And one of the things that we would debate and argue like every day, sun up to sundown, sun up to sundown, sun up to sundown. And it really helped to solidify my faith. But one of the things I remember thinking to myself as I spent day in, day out with people of a different religion is I I never realized how sincere other people actually are about their faith, even if it's false. Because sometimes we think, you know why I know I'm right? Because I'm more sincere than them. Surely they can't be as sincere or as convinced as I am about biblical, my biblical faith. We can assume this about Muslims. We can assume this, assume this about Buddhists. Well, we're right because we're just, we're just more convinced. Folks, they are very convinced. Very, very convinced. And I think they sort of sensed that in me because I remember at the end of, this, end of the summer, one of the guys that I was working for said to the effect of, if I could just get you to believe what we believe, you would be a really good Jehovah's Witness. And I said, same back to you. <laughs> So the point I'm I'm making there is that sometimes we have this notion that, um, well, my power comes from my sincerity because I am just so convinced that I'm right. That's not where our power comes from because you can be sincerely wrong. Our power comes from Christ working in us and through us. And it has to be the biblical Christ who happens to be both God and man working in us and through us. He is our ultimate power source, not our own intellect, our own, the calories we burn for the, for the cause of Christ, not our longevity. It's the power of Christ working and throwing, flowing through us, which of course we grab hold of and then release through proper understanding of who he is, through obedience to his word, through prayer for reliance, and through trust. Those four points that I outlined earlier. We allow Christ to flow through us. So he says then in verse seven, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong, that we may appear to have met the test. So prayer is part of meeting the test. And again, he's speaking of himself, but really wants them to be thinking about it. But that you may do what is right though we may seem to have failed. So that's where he does the reveal. That's where he does the reveal. Speaking of himself, well, we're we're praying that we might meet the test, that you might see us as having met the test, but actually it's so that you might do what's right, though we may have seemed to have failed. Some sarcasm there, a bit of um, creative convincing going on there as he's trying to make the point to this church kindly. From this passage, we can be reminded that we need to call upon God to empower us through prayer so that we might meet the test and not just look at the text to have appeared to have met the test. Not that we may appear to have met the test. In other words, 
it has to be real. It has to be a real evaluation. It can't just be a surfacey, quick, thought about it for three seconds and I'm done with it kind of assessment. We need to assess ourselves deeply and meaningfully, not just to focus on the externals. Well, look at me. Don't I look like a Christian? <laughs> I mean, if you've ever met a Christian, look up here. Don't I look the part? Got the part going on? Reasonably well-dressed. Got my Bible with the gold on it, black cover. It's not even bonded leather. It's the real stuff. Do I just kind of the, the surfacey stuff, sort of the things that we often look to for signs of Christianity, or is it genuine introspection? Where we've examined ourselves from within. Then in verses 8, 9, and 10, this would be a sign of true belief and true truly having passed the test, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad that we are weak and you are strong. Sarcasm. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you. And when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord, notice the source of his authority, the Lord has given me for, this is his purpose, this is his goal, building up and not for tearing down. Paul's an interesting teacher because he has this way in like the same sentence of both confronting and encouraging. Sometimes we think, well, you can only do one or the other. Right now we're doing confronting and then later on we'll do the encouraging or Right now we're doing the encouraging, so we can't do any confronting, but he, he mixes it. He's confronting, he's sort of rebuking, he's challenging, he's forcing us to think. And then he's encouraging us all at the same time. I think we should all aim for that, by the way, in our teaching and preaching ministries. We see here sort of a, a biblical vision for every believer to live by the truth of God's word, always to be for truth, not against truth regardless of accusation. Paul, of course, had been subject to much accusation, but he never relented. He never cut and run. He just kept preaching, confronting, encouraging. At the same time, as we mentioned earlier, he didn't want to be severe, but he was sort of preparing them for it if necessary. I think in Paul, learning opportunity for us as well, this is demonstrated most practically in good parenting. So if you're a good parent, you're not going to be you know, after your kid all the time. You did this wrong. Smarten up. Clean your room. You did wrong. I, you got to confront you about this. Your grades stink. Nor are you going to be like, oh, you're right. You're wonderful. You never do anything wrong. You balance. You're encouraging you're confronting, you're encouraging, you're confronting, you're encouraging, you're confronting. And this shapes a mature adult eventually. And you'll be blessed by it, and so will other people be. In churches, we should aim for that. We're always challenging each other, but we're also encouraging each other. You should always leave feeling kind of challenged and feeling kind of encouraged at the same time. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for all of us. Now, in life, a little... Um, you know, relational counsel here. This would be a good time for it. When you are doing this in ministry, and all of us should be in our homes, marriages, parenting, 
leading youth groups, running schools, on and on and on. You're going to get resistance, but it's helpful when you anticipate the resistance or aren't surprised by the resistance. You're going to get people pushed back, right? Because people, some people are just very self, they're very defensive because maybe they didn't get a lot of encouragement or they just won't deal with sin in their lives or they, they just assume encourage, uh, confrontation is a nasty thing. You must be trying to destroy my life because you're confronting me. You're going to see certain tactics used. They would include um, things like, well, I didn't like your tone, right? So let's not talk about the words. I didn't like your tone. This is a deflection technique. Just be aware of that. Okay, I'll put it, I'll put it to you differently. Is this more acceptable? <laughs> but that's a tactic. Didn't like your tone. Or sometimes when you confront, they're like, well, yeah, but, but what about you? See, they, they deflect. They, they point the finger back. Or brooding and sulking. I'm just going to kind of be all weird around you for a while to make you feel bad for confronting me. That's another tactic sometimes used. Or they go and look for someone more gracious to prop them up. Well, I don't like what you said, so I'm going to go over here, and this person's going to affirm my behavior. Or they just cut and run. They go silent. They stonewall. They just won't have the conversation. They, they, they avoid it because it's too painful to have the conversation. These are things that we're probably all guilty of at some point in our lives. Those of us that are doing the con confronting or preaching the message or teaching the small groups and are having these tough conversations, our job is to assess ourselves for motive. And Paul tells us what the good motive is here. So you're, you're doing the right thing if this is your motive. And that is for building up and not for tearing down. Sometimes we have to tear down strongholds, tear down lies, tear down false notions, tear down bad conduct, but we're not tearing the person down. We're not attacking their identity as a person made in the image and likeness of God. Our goal is to build people up, to build up the church. That should always be our goal. And if you're filled with the spirit, you will know when you've crossed the line, when you're trying to destroy a person as opposed to challenging for the sake of seeing that person mature in Christ. That's a redemptive form of confrontation, which is ultimately our goal. And if you're on the receiving end of that, I found this many times in my life, when I'm being confronted or challenged, I need to sort of think, okay, if I, if I, re, if I reject this advice, this biblical advice, this advice intended to build me up, the alternative is unthinkable. If I reject this advice from a spokesman from God, guess what will happen? God will discipline me because he loves me. And frankly, if you think confrontation from other Christians painful, try being disciplined by God. So better to lean in and receive godly counsel and advice from another believer than to go through what is often a very long and arduous process of being disciplined by God. And then finally, in this passage, we have some how-tos, sort of several of them here. I guess there's about six, five or six how-tos. And these seem almost like little mini sermons, but these would be five or six areas for us to test and assess ourselves in, in response to this overarching idea of testing and examining ourselves. So here they are. 
Finally, brothers, rejoice. So that's one. Aim for restoration. There's another. Confront one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. So several things for us to consider and assess ourselves in. Rejoicing. Is that part and parcel of my life? Do I rejoice in what God has done and the blessings of God and the provision of God? Um, Ultimate joy, which is the root of this word, is not dependent upon circumstances, but it's essentially biblical happiness. It's finding delight in the things of God. This is an error for us to assess ourselves in. And I don't know about you, but I got to remind myself of this because sometimes when I just kind of scan the world, I'm like, what in the world am I supposed to rejoice in today? Because it's all bad news again. So we got to look up and rejoice in the spiritual gifts and promises that God has given. Secondly, in relationships, we aim for restoration. Aim for restoration, the text says. We never come at each other for revenge or for purposes of destruction. The goal of confrontation is always Christ-like restoration. Third, mutual comfort. We all have dark days. Let's just admit it. Sometimes life isn't fun. We're like, come Lord Jesus and come now. I hope the the, the second coming happens today. We have those days. Other times we're like, Lord, things are pretty good. Can you delay it for a bit? But when we have those difficult days, while God is our ultimate comfort, he also uses other people to encourage, to speak truth, to pray with us, to just bless us. And we should be looking for opportunities to bless and encourage one another, even asking questions. We tend to want to make statements, but asking questions of other people. Small groups is a great place for this, by the way. We encourage in our church everyone to be connected to a small group so that you can get that up-close personal care. Peace, peaceable living. Sometimes we, you know, we have to confront and have those fights and arguments, but our goal is always peace. Like you, you got to be kind of weird if you like drama. What we want is to live peaceable and quiet lives. That's what we want. That's like the heavenly vision on earth. So we, we aim for that. We aim for peace in our relationships, affection, greet each other with a holy kiss. I'm going to practice that right now. Maybe just turn to the person to your left or right and just give them a big old smooch. <laughs> I see some people pushing back. Now, in, in, in the ancient Near East, that would have been this, the kiss on the cheek. It's still practiced in some um, Mediterranean cultures and Middle Eastern cultures today. But the takeaway is physical affection. Can I just maybe remind us, because I think we've forgotten for the past year in this world of physical distancing, don't touch me, don't come close to me. We are incarnate beings. And our physicality is not something for us to deny or reject or to forget about. Now, yeah, I mean, I understand if you have the stomach flu and you threw up five minutes ago, I don't really want a hug from you. But... We are physical beings and human beings that are never hugged, never kissed. There's never physical touch. It diminishes our humanity. I would even argue degrades our humanity on some level. We want to be appropriate in our physical contact because the world has 
created a lot of ways to use physical touch, touch for sexual sin. But we're not like, oh man, I don't touch, I don't shake hands. You might have a germ on your hand. I don't put my arm around people. You might take it the wrong way. Like in this world, physical touch is a gift that God has given to us. I remember one of our children, our youngest daughter, when she was very little, she was unique from the other four because if she'd climb into our bed, I'd be over here, Susie's over here. And we didn't really let our kids sleep in the bed with us too often because it's irritating. They're thrashing all over the place. But every once in a while, she'd be in there for a few minutes. And no matter where she was, she always had to have a point of contact, you know, like the toe on your leg, the hand on your you know, arm. There always had to be like, like there's always this point of physical touch because that was her way of feeling accepted. We are, we're all like that on different levels. We need physical touch. So little reminder after a year of absence, it's perfectly acceptable to hug people, to shake people's hands. And guys, if it's your wife, to kiss her on the lips, okay? Other than that, mm, okay, just be careful, okay? So physical touch, it's, it's actually a gospel blessing to others. And finally, this passage signs off with a spiritual blessing. Paul just gives these spiritual words of blessing over the church, not like hocus pocus, they're doing something to you, but he declares truth to the people he's ministering to. And maybe we don't think about this a lot, but there's a blessing to declare truth to other people that's grounded in scripture. There's an encouragement, a spiritual blessing that comes from that. Take note of the Trinitarian tone of verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. It's a Trinitarian blessing from God. And it reminds us, oh yeah, the grace that we have is a result of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the cross. The love of God, I mean, that brings to mind John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent. God loves us. There's people in church, perhaps even here today, no one said to you this week, I love you. Sometimes people are even awkward to say that. I love you. Pardon? I love you. They don't hear it. We want people to hear it every single week at our church. That's why we sign off, you are loved. Because you are. And there's a blessing to that when you hear you. Listen to these words, you. Not the person next to you, you are loved. There's a blessing to that. And ultimately, we love because God first loved us. It's grounded in the work of the Father. And then finally, the fellowship of the Spirit. He lives in us. He's our resource. We have communion with the Spirit of God. He counsels us. He empowers us. And we're reminded of that. Oh, I have the triune God who's for me, not against me. And he's in me and he's working through me. These are words of blessing. When we hear them, they remind us of not only our eternal life, but I think they also serve to give us a little taste of the abundant life that is available to us in the present. So may these words encourage you as you continue to examine and test yourself so that you might increasingly be conformed to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ.